There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. Welcome back to the Titans of Food Service podcast. I know I say this every episode, but thank you for joining me here on another episode. This one, this one was a home run. I had the chance to speak with Steve Sweeney, who is the president and CEO of Chartwells, and talk about just a lot of nuggets that I learned through this conversation, especially around taking risks and the daily life of a CEO in a multi-hundred million dollar organization. Truly inspirational to hear Steve's story. And I'm just excited for you to, to, to hear what he has to say as well. So let's not waste any time and let's go ahead and welcome Steve. So Steve, Welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. I'm so excited to have you on here today. Thank you for taking time out of your day to chat with me. Well, thanks, Nick. Thanks for reaching out. It's my pleasure. Of course. So what I usually like to do on these episodes with the guests is I usually like to start from the very beginning. So how did you get into the food service industry? Well, I'm going to take you way, way back. I've been very, very blessed in life that I always knew what I wanted to do. Uh, My dad's family was in the restaurant hotel business and they had several restaurants and hotels in a resort area, Hampton, New Hampshire. And my folks said, why don't you go and spend a weekend with your aunt and uncle? Uh, So I did that. And I was maybe six at the time, very young kid. And I said, how could anything be better than this? You go to the beach during the day And you work in a restaurant at night and people are having a blast and they're having cocktails and dinner. So fast forward to 15, 16 years old and your folks say to you, okay, what would you like to be when you grow up? So, you know, I pondered it and this restaurant hotel thing stuck in the back of my mind. I said, I want to become a chef. So I went to culinary school, restaurant, hotel degree, got out. And I worked in a place called Brando's, which is basically a steakhouse, one of the, you know, brass and fern places of the day. Uh, While I was working there, someone from the school I went to reached out and said, why don't you come and work with a company called Servimation in Boston? Now, back then it was called Institutional Food Service. It needed a whole marketing redo, institutional. So I didn't want to have anything to do with institutional. Right. Went into it absolutely kicking and screaming. So I said, what I'll do is I'll keep my night job in the restaurant and I will go days and work uh, at this particular location with Servimation. I was there maybe six months. They put me in a management training program. Then they said, how would you like to spend a weekend in New York? Again, fabulous, glamorous. I'm in. Go open up SUNY College at Purchase. So I went. And I drove down the Merritt Parkway, got off in Westchester County, and it was absolute paradise. So I went for a weekend, and I stayed for 50 years, (laughs) 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 Um, which was, you know, fantastic. So 
I started at SUNY College at Purchase, started off as a chef, uh, worked my way into management, spent five years there. Then uh, I went to work for Flick International, for Rudy Flick, and I spent almost 20 years with Flick International. Flick became part of Compass Group. Then I went over to Compass Group. And at the time, they were looking for someone to run their education division. So I said, you know, why not? I always had my hand up in the air. Anytime somebody said, you want to volunteer for something, I did it. So I raised my hand, went to Chartwell's. I said, I'll give myself a year. That's it. I'm just going to, you know, I'll give it a, a whirl for a year. And these were early, early days. So I give myself a year. That lasted 20 years as CEO, a board member of Compass Group, an officer of the company. And I loved every minute of it. It was all fantastic. The whole journey. That's incredible. Yeah. When you were going to school, did you, you it sounded like you're going to culinary school and to get your degree in, in hospitality management. Right. Did you, did you feel you wanted to be a chef or did you want to be on the managerial side of things to start? I really wanted to be a chef. I mean, that, that was my first love. And it still is. I mean, I love to cook. I, I love the whole action of the kitchen. But early days, I looked around me and I saw a lot of people who were, you know, once they hit 50, 60 years old, if they're, you know, on the bakery side and they're carrying 100-pound sacks of flour or you're in the kitchen, I mean, you know, you need something that's going to last you a lifetime. And sure. uh, back then, uh, you know, you were working all the nights, all the weekends, uh, the, you know, just the physical strain on, on your body was tough. So I just said, you know, let me try the management thing. And, you know, I had some great mentors. I mean, I was surrounded by great people and, um, you know, the rest is history, but I, I did really, the culinary piece gave me the experience that I needed, you know, uh, later in life in terms of knowing my way around a kitchen. Sure. Sure. You know, that makes sense. My business, we're a food service brokerage company here in the West. So we're in California, Nevada and Hawaii. My dad and I, we started our company back eight years ago in 2015. And it's been a very rewarding uh, journey that he and I have been on together. And we built a nice little business for ourselves. I'm curious, what was it like working with your family? back, I know you said you started when you were six years old. Yeah, well, I didn't spend a lot of time working with my particular family, but I can't speak gotcha. to that because I worked uh, with Flick, uh, which was a family business. So Rudy and Julie Flick, who started the company, and it's it's an interesting dynamic, as you know, working in a family business. Um, yeah. You know, everybody tends to have their own departments, but then there are, you know, everybody has a say-so in what everybody else does. So I always felt like family. I believe that the, the family businesses are very strong businesses, especially when everybody gets along, uh, because you know the personalities, you know what you can expect out of people. But it does take a special person to work with, you know, siblings, spouses, uh, aunts, uncles. I was smart enough to not do it within my own family. I did it in somebody <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's smart. That's smart. What what were some of the things at the time for Flick International? What was what was their business model? What were you working on? What did your day to day life look like? Flick started out really in the education business. Uh, okay. Rudy, you know, was born in Europe, uh, came to America. His wife went to restaurant hotel school at Cornell. Perfect match, um, and he saw an opportunity at Sarah Lawrence College, which was their first account. He went over, and and so. 
the first, I would say the first five years or so was pretty much education, but they're mostly known now for private K-12 uh, schools and for corporate dining, and that's nationally. And they also do a lot of airport services. So if you go into an airport lounge, it's one of the high-end lounges, uh, it's probably Flick Food. So there was an evolution over time that it went from education to corporate dining. And the corporate dining piece was really, uh, you know, when I was there, I, I call it the frothy days because this was back when, you know, all the law firms, the big uh, accounting firms, they couldn't spend enough money. You know, they, they had it and they knew how to spend it and they knew how to enjoy it. And it was a great time. Um, that'll never happen again, but it was, it was the frothy late 70s and 80s when um, you could go into a dining room and, you know, uh, it, the best of China, the best of food. Um, it, was, it was absolute, a, a chef's dream or a food service manager's dream because the budget was, there was no budget. <laughs> and if you, didn't, if, you didn't, if you didn't spend enough money, then the quality wasn't there. But those days are long gone. But they've evolved over time and they've done you know, a great job in terms of adapting themselves as a company and getting into airport services and you know, sticking to their base with their K-12 clients, the private school market. Uh, but most of their, their business is non-public. You know, it's it's you know, uh, business and industry, private university, private K-12. Uh, and, and I have to say, working for them, they were great mentors. Uh, both Rudy and Julie Flick were really, I mean, that's, that's the school I really went to was the school of, you know, Rudy and Julie Flick. And they, they brought along a tremendous amount of people in the organization. I mean, their senior management team for the most part have all done very, very well over time. Yeah. What are some of the things that you learned from working or going to Rudy and Julie Flick University. <laughs> <laughs> quality of food, quality of ingredients, uh, being being accessible, being you know Johnny on the spot. You know, it's the hospitality industry. People want to see you know management. They want you to be out there. Good client contact. I think you know uh, being charming uh, while you're doing all of this. Sure. Uh, and I think doing it on a different level, I mean, you know, separating yourself from the pack and um, they always had a quality product and they were always quality people and they always did things on the up and up. Work ethic, uh, an incredible work ethic. And I think that, you know, they, they attracted great people and they brought along the great people. I mean, they, they really were fantastic uh, in that regard. Sure. Um, Julie has since passed. Rudy is still around and doing very, very well. Um, so I stay in touch with them. And that's the beauty of the business, too, is that, you know, staying in touch with a lot of these people that you knew over the years. But um, they brought along, a, 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 you know, several presidents and vice presidents that are in the industry today and have done very well. Wow. Yeah. When when you first started there, did, what was the competitive set like? Or was they were they the only ones really doing what they were doing? There were a lot of smaller regional companies similar okay. to Flick. So there was corporate dining, there was gourmet, there was uh, a long list of smaller companies that, you know, through the 80s and 90s were getting swallowed up by the larger companies. Hence, you know, Flick became part of Compass Group. Right. So the, and, and they were all entrepreneurial people for the most part. 
But the thing that I, I believe Rudy and Julie brought to the table was that they stuck with it. A lot of people got in, made the money, you know, were for sale, uh, sold it, and, and had you know took their money and ran. They didn't do that, right? And they always and, and I will say that they took care of their people because a lot of these other companies, uh, you know, let's face it, the food service industry, there's really not a tremendous amount of assets if you own a company. Um, it's a it's a file cabinet filled with contracts, and it, it is uh, your relationships and your people. I mean that that's your company, and that's true. I think yeah. And and one thing that Flick did is they made sure that people were taken care of, their clients were taken care of, and I think some of the other folks what they did was that they sold the company. Those companies got folded into uh, the other corporations trying to get into the corporate culture. And there, it wasn't a good mix in some cases. And, um, and hence, clients were saying, hey, I want out of here. And, um, but uh, Flick never did that. They had great account retention. They built a great business. And we're all a product of that. Sure. Yeah. When, you, when you first started at Flick, to, uh, when you concluded at Flick, what was kind of your starting role? And then where did you make it up to? Okay, so um, in 96, Flick was purchased by Compass Group, and there was a period there where a lot of acquisitions were happening. So Flick was purchased by Compass Group at this, about the same time, maybe a year or so later, they purchased a company called DACA, Dining and Kitchen Administration. Okay. It was a $365 million company headquartered in Danvers, Massachusetts. And they had done a number of different things, um, but predominantly what was left and what Compass purchased was the food service portion. So I was still at Flick. Deka gets purchased. The CEO of Deka went out to lunch, had a heart attack, and dropped dead. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I got a call from the CEO of Compass Group, and he said, would you like to go run Deka? Now, at the time, I was traveling for business. I was in Virginia in a hotel room. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. I put myself on the next plane. Again, never passed up the opportunity. Flew right into Boston, and I moved you know, right in. And at the time, Deka was doing education, but they also had some corporate dining. So in the, at the end of the day, uh, I had a grieving company. I became the president of Deka, and I had to basically break up the company, for lack of better words, and put it into the different compartments uh, that were part of Compass Group. So the corporate dining piece went to corporate, vending went to vending, and so forth. But the largest chunk was education. So out of the $365 million that was core DACA, $265 of that was education, which became the seed organization for Chartwell's then we folded in some of the other side, and that was really the birth of Chartwells back in 1996. So the stint with Dacre was about a year or so, um, and, and another great organization. But, you know, Compass's, uh, their philosophy was, you know, they'd have a brand for each sector of, of the, the organization. And if there was a, they might even have two or three, but Dacre didn't really have, I think the identity in any one particular sector, they were in, they were, did all kinds of things. So, um, they, you know, I was there to break it up and, but I stayed on and I was, you know, then most of it came over to Charwell's and the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I, I'm just curious, jumping in, you know, getting the call at 2 a.m. and getting on the first flight out to Boston, and you're taking over a company doing 365 million. What was the feelings around that? What was that experience like? <laughs> I gave myself, you know, I, well, it, it was interesting because Deca had purchased Servimation, uh, American Food Service, Service Master, five or six different companies they purchased just prior to their president passing away. So I would go to a, an account and I would still see Service America uniforms on people. And, you know, so, I mean, there was, there, there was a lot of movement at the time, which was also very interesting because the people that hired me at Servimation all of a sudden were part of the DECO organization and ultimately reported to me. They were all very nice to me, especially when I was the CEO. <laughs> but it was, it was exciting times because there was always a challenge. There was always something new. There was, you know, and uh, I think we right-sized the organization. Um, there were some instances where, you know, you, you, get a, you get sort of a day or two of feeling like, wow, this is just, you know, you got this big boardroom and you've got this huge office and you've got all this staff. Then you look in the mirror and you say, I got to manage this thing, you know, and do we really need all of this? So, the, you know, in short order, you figure out, you know what, we've got to take care of our employees. We've got to take care of our customers. And here's, you know, how we got to do that. And um, there were great people in that organization. I have to say they all, you know, stuck with me and, you know, became part of Chartwells and pressed on. But the first couple of days, uh, the first, you know, few months was kind of scary. I, one thing I did do is I, when I got there, I said, we're going to take Alan's office. Alan was the president who passed away. We're going to, you know, just make it, you want to come in, sit down. You know, I didn't move in and I, I gave everybody a chance to, to breathe a little bit because they were sizing me up too. I was sizing them up, you know, it was that kind of a thing. And, you know, we all figured each other out and it all worked out. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, yeah. I think there's a lot of people listening to this podcast, you know, that's, I think it's a, it's a dream, right? To, to manage and be in charge of that large of an operation, but there's, a, it's gotta be scary too. I mean, there's, you can go get the fanciest business degree out there, but who really teaches you the, the daily rigors and challenges of managing a business that large? You just, you get in and you do it and you manage it. But I, like I said, I had great people. There were, there were some sure. really, really fantastic vice presidents and I knew my way around operations. Um, you know, I, I was the type of person that once I took over the company, I got out in the field. I mean, I was accessible. I traveled. I mean, I was constantly at accounts or having meetings and, you know, cause they want to know who you are and what you're about and shouldn't be such a mystery. It, it is the hospitality business. So, you know, that's sure. how I spent my first couple of years was I was on the road constantly. Yeah, uh, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I mean, you look back now. I mean, there's some road stories. Uh, I get reminded <laughs> by emails from people that were part of the organization. You know, sending me letters that I would send out after a visit and say, "Remember when you sent me this caustic letter after you came for a visit?" That kind of thing. <laughs> sure. Uh, so it was a lot of fun. It was all it was all good and a lot of fun. So going from Deca into Chartwells, and it sounds like you were the the main guy over at Chartwells as well, yeah. the, the CEO. Right. right. 
I can only imagine that his chart wells was 365, somewhere around there, if not greater than what Dacre was doing. Right. So day one at Chartwell's, remember back in the conversation we had was, it was 365, but 100 came off. Compass then added another 100. So we started off at 365. And, you know, it, it really, the model is, you know, stay close to your clients, listen to your clients, you know, make sure your employees all feel good about going to work every day. So early days, you know, it was a national company. I mean, that was the thing. I mean, 365 million spread over the 50 or the 48 contiguous United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, the States is big. It's big, it, as we know. And uh, you spread that out. In there are territories that we were a little lean. So early days, we had to build the business. It was either grow, grow as quickly as we possibly can, take the world by storm, and you know, and grow our way out of some of the smaller headaches that we had because we had territories where we probably didn't have a vice president, but we needed a vice president, but we needed the growth in those areas. So growth was the way out to, you know, become a national company while dealing with, while dealing with cultures, you know, a year before there were, you know, American food service, service master, DACA, there was even some flick thrown in some canteen. Um, They were all part of different, cultures and the the way to fix that in the hospitality these are hospitality people you get out you go on the road you meet with them we had every summer when school was closed we just did nothing but go to summer meetings get in front of our students and client base and in front of our associates and um and grew the company very very quickly as, as quickly as we could and back then there were really only two companies you know there was marriott who was doing college food service and Aramark and some regionals, pockets of regionals. But on the national scene, there was, you know, we were the third player sort of overnight, which helped us with our success, I would say, because there were really only two national players. And then all of a sudden you get a third one on the scene. And that, you know, I think that helped our model as well. There was another choice. What was it like going through such rapid growth? It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> growth is fun. Yeah, yeah. growth is fun. It, it, it was exciting. And there were eager people wanting to join up. The whole, the whole lot of it was just fun. It really was. There was some scary times. There's no question. You know, when you're growing quickly and you're adding people and you're moving people around. But at the end of the day, I think the biggest thing we brought to the table was we had job security for people, especially when you have all these companies that become part of one. How do you make them feel comfortable? People want to know, okay, am I going to have a job at the end of the year? Am I going to be able to, you know, is, is this my career? Am I going to be here for 5, 10, 15, 20 years? And after the first few months, we got everybody in a room, all the senior management. It must have been 100 senior managers. And we just said, if you're in this room, you're in. We're pressing forward. You're part of the organization. And we're going to make this all happen. But, you, you, you know, people have to be uh, secure in their positions, feel good about the company. And that was probably the biggest thing that we did. Where there was so much uncertainty for so long. You know, you got a CEO running this larger part of the organization who's now dead. You got um, this new guy in me who, you know, trying to size me up, which yeah. was kind of interesting. 
And then you got Compass Group, which is, you know, they came over from the UK with a slightly English accent, you know. I mean, there's a lot of change in a short period. Yeah, make them feel comfortable and we pressed on and got it done. When you were growing the company, was there any significant setbacks that you had that you had to overcome? Hmm. There's always going to be little setbacks. And I think, but I, my sense is they were always industry setbacks. For example, you know, in some years you'd have food costs would go up by 5%. And most of your contracts, which are tied to municipalities or universities, a lot of them are public universities, can't walk in and say, okay, by the way, I'd like to have 5% more, you know, uh, for my board rates for next year. So, but it was an industry-wide situation. So I would say in terms of, you know, issues, they were, how do we overcome something um, industry-wide? And our view was always to try to grow our way out of it. Anytime there was a situation, I can't really say that there was anything, you know, labor shortages, um, it's the same music that's being played now. You see it, you know, if you turn on any channel in the news, you know, trying to find good people, food costs, you know, inflation, um, all of those things. Those noises in the background have been played forever. And it's a matter of how do you overcome them? How do you have the relationships with your clients? How do you get your people to do the most for you and so on? But at the end of the day, people... You know, your associates and your clients want, you know, an organization who's healthy and can withstand the bumps. There have been, you know, I mean, I can tell you not every contract you get right. Sometimes that just, you know, on odd occasion, you know, you get a client who will say, well, we're going to have, we have 10,000 students. You're going to feed 10,000 students. And then all of a sudden, day one, you got 4,000 students. Well, what happened? Well, there's some that are part-time, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you know, you work it out. You work it I, out. I've always been curious. What is the when you go to the to the operator level, to the school, or to the corporate campus? What is the value proposition that you would bring to them that, that would want them that would make them want to be a part? There's a difference between public and private. First of all, um, okay. there's a lot of similarities which I'll touch on, but the the public arena. Everything has to be, you know, open to the sunshine laws. Everybody wants to see what's going on. They have a full exposure, you know, in terms of contracts. Private universities or private schools or, for that matter, private industry can do a little bit more and has a bit more flexibility because they're not on the public eye. It's evolved over time. I would say, you know, 40 years ago, it was we want good food. Now it's food, quality food is a given. It's that way everywhere in the food service industry. I'm sure your other guests will tell you the same thing. Mm-hmm. Quality is a given. So you walk in and, you know, what does the proposition look like? Okay, your food's going to be good. Essentially, it comes down to what kind of service are you going to provide and at what price is it going to be? Mm-hmm. And I think the, the big thing is technology, which is an accelerator these days helps you get it to students and guests faster. So qualities are given, um, give it to me as quickly as possible and through technology and through whatever other vehicles you can, 
make it as reasonable as possible. And, you know, everybody's under a bit of a, a budget constraint, but that's nothing new. You know, sure. that, that, that's old news. I'd say quality is, is, is like I said, is a given. And um, the biggest thing is, what are you going to do for me? There are a fair amount of similarities in the industry. You know, everybody wants a brand set. So, you know, whether it's our company providing a Starbucks or, you know, the opposition providing a Starbucks, you know, everybody does a Starbucks. Everybody does, you know, all the brands. But what is your catering going to look like? What, you know, you're going to be, you know, full hours of operation. What is your technology like? And at the end of the day, it's also what kind of people you're going to provide. That part of the business has not changed. They want to meet their manager and know who's going to be running their facility. You know, it's one thing, you know, corporate's got to be doing what corporate does, but most, most uh, clients want to know, okay, who am I going to deal with day to day? It's nice to meet you, Mr. CEO, but who's, who's, who's the guy who's, really, who's going to really run this thing? That's right. Who's that person? <laughs> <laughs> so true. Um, how many? I'm just curious. How many employees were at the company at this when you were there? Oh God, all in thirty five thousand. But 35, there were some. 000. So I'm saying, you know, I would say, you know, hesitation in my voice a bit is because we had some contracts where we managed the associates, but they were on the university's payroll. In other words, you know, we managed them, but they stayed on because the industry as it is, there's a fair amount of self-ops that are out there, mostly in K-12. Most of K-12 is self-op. Um, higher ed is maybe 35% or so, depending on where you are. Actually, on the West Coast, it's much more self-op than on the East Coast. But in order to entice a self-op to come over to a contract management company, usually the, the sticking point is the associates. How are you going to treat my people? So a way around that is keep them on the university's payroll. We'll manage them. A lot of times they do come over. I mean, in the, in the case of Texas A&M, which was a huge, huge contract. I'm sure. You know, I mean, that's like taking, that's, that's feeding a city, uh, stadium <laughs> and all. Um, but those, all those associates came over. So yeah, it was a big, uh, it was a big number. Of all the people that work there, why you? How were you able to get to the CEO level? Because that's, I mean, that's an incredible feat. What was it about yourself that you possessed that other people maybe not had that you did? I think, you know, it's, I believe it was Pierre Trudeau said, you know, in terms of luck, it's opportunity meets persistence and um, preparation. So if you prepare, an opportunity is there. And I think in my case, that was it. I mean, I, I, I always took, I can name jobs that I took over the years, people that didn't want to work weekends. I said, I'm in, I'll do the weekends. You know, I volunteered for whatever it was, you know, oh, I'm not going to go, you know, run that district. You know, it's, it's, you know, too painful. You know, I'm in. I, I always loved a good crisis. You know, I didn't invite the crisis, but if I had a crisis, throw me in the middle of it, I'm okay. I'm good. And I thrived on it. And, you know, I was tend to be the voice of calm, I thought. And But there's a lot of factors. And I had some great mentors. Yeah, I was surrounded by great people. There, there were a lot of things. But in terms of me getting the position, there's certainly a lot of people that are qualified to do it. There's no question. But I you know, was in the right place. Um, but I prepared myself 
And then the next and you just have to do it. I mean, at the end of the day, you've got all these people counting on you. I mean, my, my biggest fear, I think all those years was not being able to provide those people with a paycheck. That was my biggest, you know, so growth was important because at the end of the day comes down, you know, all things, you know, put everything aside. People want a paycheck. They got to provide for their families. And, um, that weighed heavily upon me. Um, and then you just do it. You just get it done. You just figure out a way to get it done. You mentioned having mentors. What was some of the things maybe that stick out to you that you learned through others? How to take risk. And, you know, that's probably the biggest thing probably in the, in the CEO school is how to take risk and live with it and come out the other side. Um, I'd also want to mention that, you know, in, in that vein, there were some fabulous mentors at Compass Group. You know, Mike Bailey, who was there for a long time. Gary Green, who uh, is still there and is, you know, a fantastic guy and, you know, taught me a lot, particularly in, you know, how to get things done and to just press on with it. And I think their style was uh, make a decision, get it done. If you make a mistake, we'll talk about it, you know, and that became my style too. It wasn't going to chop your head off. People have to make a decision. They got to press on and we're all in it together and we'll figure it out. But risk was probably the biggest thing that I learned. I mean, the rest of it, you know, the back of the house stuff, easy, a lot of fun. I was not to like about that. Even the front of the house, the customer facing stuff, but the business part of it and taking the risk and figuring out how do you accommodate that risk and at the end of the day, give shareholder value. That's the, that's the tricky one. Are you somebody who you, where you make decisions quickly? Like, I guess the question would be, how would you assess the risk? I make decisions quickly to answer that question. Um, yeah. People who cannot make a decision, it just makes me a bit bananas, you know, and, and you just have to weigh it all out in your head. And it's just sometimes becomes instinctive. You know, um, you don't have, you don't think about it a lot. You just, you know, here's what we're going to do and we're going to press on. I would say, having said that, my style was a little bit of a benevolent dictator in terms of, you know, I, I would make a decision and it was like, okay. But I mean, I, I always listened to other people, you know, did all that sort of thing as well. However... And I think people began to trust me after a while. It's like, okay, he's been a food service director on a college campus. You know, I could walk on and say, you know, this is what this needs, da, 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 da. And they're, oh, you know, he's right. I mean, you could tell when people are, you know, looking at you and saying you're right or, you know, they're saying you're full of it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but I, I was very quick, you know, that to me, in, make a decision quickly, live with the end result and, you know, if you ponder it, you're going to waste a lot of time. At that time, were you more of a visionary or you more of an execution guy? Which one was more of your sweet spot? Execution. I'm an execution. operator at heart. I'm an operator at heart. Yeah, I love yeah, that. I like, I'm an operator. Yeah. No, really, I'm an operator at heart, admittedly. Yeah. Sure. I, no, I, I, I can uh, sympathize with that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I love the low... The logistics and how's it all going to happen? Uh, as I mentioned before, if there's a crisis or something, you know, throw me in there. I'll figure out how to get it done. I just love that operator, you know, how to figure it out 
and then getting the outcome and wow, you know, that's a win. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel that in my own business. My dad is a little bit more of a visionary and I'm more of the execution, kind of roll my sleeves up and just get it done kind of guy. Sometimes I get probably too into the weeds, but in, in, in terms of when I, when I want to achieve something, kind of like yourself, I'll, I'll show up, I'll be there early and I just won't stop. I won't quit until they get what I right. want. If you could go back in time to, to the very beginning of your journey here in food service, would you have done anything differently? Probably twofold. Okay. On a personal level, probably would have taken more time for myself. But that's, you make choices and I'm happy with what I did and everything. But, you know, for year, for decades, I wouldn't take a vacation or, you know, I I, I worked and, and I loved it. I, I loved what I did. And so, but, you know, looking back, I probably would have been a richer, you know, mentally, you know, more diverse and just a bit more rounded, shall we say, had I done a bit more traveling time to myself. I mean, my travel, I believe me, I've traveled, but it's all business, you know, (laughs) going the La Quinta walk up in, you know, San Marcos, Texas with the crickets. I mean, you know, (laughs) I've done plenty of that. (laughs) And then, so, you know, on a personal side, that would be my thing is to just take a little bit more time for myself. And then on the business side, I don't have too many regrets there, but I always question, could I have done more in terms of more risk? You know, I I like that challenge, but I could have pushed myself maybe a little bit more in certain areas. And because risk at the end of the day, you know, the person who takes the most risk makes the most money, right? Right. Uh, Usually, I mean, people say, well, you know, Jeff Bezos and, you know, anybody who's, you know, all these names of, you know, people, the multi-billionaires, they took the risk, you know, and you only hear those names. You don't hear about the the other couple thousand that failed trying to do the same thing that are working for the rest of their lives, trying to pay back all the money they lost. Um, But the (laughs) biggest, you know, yeah, Elon Musk, I mean, you know, look what he did, you know, a huge risk. So I look at that, you know, reflecting on some of these people, not that I'm in that league, but they took, you know, tremendous risk. And maybe I could have pushed the the risk piece of uh, business a bit more, only because I think demographics were in our favor, you know, students going to college, students, you know, education. I mean, the education market is a great market to be in. Universities, universities and schools don't move. You know, they don't close. Unlike, you know, some of the, you know, the sports arenas, uh, business and industry hospitals, they close, they move, they come under new leadership. Think about education. It's it's always there. It's just always going to be there and they don't move. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, it's it's a a great steady business. It has other challenges, but it's great steady business. Around around risk, I've got kind of a personal question. I I started in 2015 with my dad. We started our business. I had never held a full-time job prior to that. I came right out of college. Six days later, he's like, let's just start this. And I was like, "Eh, okay, here I am eight years later. And it's been a great run. But I think one of the things, and it, it comes around maybe my level of experience, but it's around, I guess, around taking risk, having a scarcity mindset. What advice would you give to somebody who, 
has a scarcity mindset, sees where they want to go, understands maybe the risk that they need to take, but you know, just kind of getting over that hump of saying, yes, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, I'm going to be all in, you know, cause spending your own money is, it, it can be scary. What if you to run out, you know, similar to your fears of, you know, ensuring people have a job and then they never, the company doesn't go under, you know, things like that. So find somebody else with a lot of money or an investor, but that's probably not the answer you want to hear. Because that comes with a lot of, um, there's always strings attached. But right. um, I, I would say, as someone who's gone through that journey a bit, you just got to get used to it. And you, sometimes yeah. you just got to hold your nose. And, and maybe in your personal situation is you just haven't had, you, you weren't forced, you know, you need to force yourself or somebody's got to force you. In my personal case, I, I didn't have much of a choice. You know, it was like either do or die. You're either going to do this, you're either going to take the risk. And a lot of times it, or it could be anything. You want to win a big, big contract. You've got to be able to take the bigger risk. Or if it's take the job at Dacon, which led to Charwell's. In that hotel room, am I going to sit there? Well, let me think about it. Let me give me a week. No, no. <laughs> this is a, this is a once in a lifetime. You know, I'm in. I'm there. Uh, and then you get there and you, wow, I got to do this. You know, you and so maybe you just throw yourself in, and you're either going to sink or swim. And if you sink, you're going to learn because you know a lot of times you're just a combination of all your mistakes fixed and um, you got to make a few and maybe uh, sometimes failure is, is more painful than, um, you know, glory is in terms of pleasure and feeling good. You know, it's like you're, you're, you're afraid of failure more than you are wanting success. So get used to failure, I guess, get used to failure. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> maybe it might be the <laughs> ultimate answer <laughs> get comfortable with, don't get comfortable with risk get comfortable with failure and then you'll do the risk yeah good point point. and Steve what are you up to current day well um, after I retired after 20 years with Compass um, I did some consulting for them which was great and then COVID hit and COVID's changed a lot of things um, oh yeah and, I, and it's changed the industry a lot. Um, so I have been doing some, you know, little consulting bits here and there. But the big thing is, you know, adjusting to retired life is, you know, when you have a big corporate life and you're always on the road and you're surrounded by people. So what do, you, what do I do now? I mean, I'm, I'm doing things that I thought, well, I always knew I would have to do them but I'm trying to get used to them. So it's like, okay, I have to register a car. How does that work? It's like, it's a whole new thing. You got to go register, you know, because I I mean, I had cars, but you know, the fleet department (laughs) registered the car. You know, uh, you want food. You got to go to the grocery, grocery store. What, how does that work? You know, so it's learning how to live. (laughs) Don't make myself out to be any, you know, big deal, but you, you know, there's, I made that decision in terms of, you know, 20 years is a long time as a CEO, but it was all fabulous. It was really all fabulous. And I think a lot of people were surprised when I said, you know, I I think it's time. And I had a great team left behind and great successor and and everything. And, uh, but I, I made that decision that I wanted to give myself 
plenty of time so that I could, you know, later in life be able to do a lot of this stuff myself. And hey, I'm pretty handy, you know, that sort of thing. But some of the day-to-day stuff is, uh, but I've done some things with, you know, I've joined all the historical society, all the, you, you know, I live in an area that's big into nature and all these preserves and I do on all that stuff, doing all that. But I've learned that I like to be in charge. And if I'm not in charge, I'm really not great sitting on a committee. <laughs> if, I have to op- if, I have, if I have to open my kimono and truth be told, I do not want to sit on it. Either put me in charge or I am not going to sit there and listen to a bunch of people in town talk about you know, well, I think we should do this at the preserve and we should do that and we should buy this acreage. Can't, can't, can't do it. <laughs> can't do it. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Uh, well, Steve, I, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time to come onto the podcast and share your story. I really enjoyed it. And I what I usually say to, to the guests is when I started in the food service industry with my dad, he said, this is a business where there's no books you can read to be successful. You just got to get out there and do it. And you'll learn and make mistakes along the way. So it, last year when I started this podcast, I was like, this is going to be my version of a book, a food service book. And it's going to be interviewing people who have been successful uh, in this industry that we all love so much. So thank you for being open and sharing your story. I know it's going to resonate with a lot of people. So thank you. My pleasure. Best of luck to you. Thank you.